0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be doing Mosiah 25 through 28. Yeah, and we're also going to go a little
0: bit into 29 because I know Come Follow Me puts 29 with Alma, but it really does fit well with the end of Mosiah. So if we jump into Mosiah 29, please forgive us. We'll be a little bit a week ahead, but great stuff this week, Mike.
1: Yeah, there's so much. Mosiah 27 is the story of Alma the Younger. So this is the son of Alma—I always put a one by his name—the first Alma who was the priest in Noah's court— And so now we're in the future, and Alma's son, Alma the Younger, is kind of being a punk, and he's going out with his friends, and they're seeking to destroy the church. And so this is the story of Alma's conversion, and it reminds us a little bit of Paul, doesn't it? Yep. And it
0: stands as a sentinel for all of us that if God loves Alma enough to stop him in his ways, to be worried about him, if God will forgive Alma, then clearly God will forgive me. And I think the Book of Mormon and the Scriptures are filled with those sentinels to say, look, look how God cares about Alma the Younger. He forgave his sins. He cleansed him. And this man, who was the very vilest of sinners, becomes the prophet. That should give every one of us hope, because I would dare say not very many of us are a vile sinner like Alma was. And yet the fact that this man becomes the prophet seems to suggest that repentance is real. And there is no limit to the atonement, and he can reach down into the very depths of hell to save a repentant
1: sinner. And so this whole story stands as hope to all of us. We have this a bunch of times in the Book of Mormon where the people that are the enemies, the good guys, are praying for them. Like, for example, when everybody gets back out of the land of Nephi, and the Lamanites are separated from them, they kind of talk a little bit about how, you know, we're kind of sad about their condition. Alma 27 is a really good example for us. In other words, I think this was written for us. Don't you think, Bryce? Like It shows you the way that these guys operate, but I think it also is a warning to us as Latter-day Saints to not be so judgmental. Don't be so high and mighty if you see somebody who's acting like this. Remember that that is one of God's children as well. I really am into some of these highlighting things. Bryce, you do this a lot where you'll go through a text, and you're like, look at these words. And so I'm going to start here. Look at 27— Look at the very beginning there. Look in verse 7. The people become prosperous and wealthy, and then the author, Mormon, is giving us the description of Mosiah and his sons and Alma and, and who he is, Alma the Younger. Notice what it says. It says that he was a wicked and idolatrous man. He used many words and much flattery. He stole away the hearts of the people, and he caused dissension and he sought to destroy the church of God. And then I find this fascinating, and I don't know what to do with it, but look at verse 10. It says that he went about secretly seeking to destroy the church. Maybe there was stuff that he was doing kind of on the sly. But that's who he was. I mean, without calling out names, Bryce, we see this today, don't we? Yeah, and
0: we see a lot of people trying to destroy the church. It seems like if you leave the church, you can't leave the church alone. And a lot of people are striving to destroy the church. Some of them even make money doing it. They do. They do. And so that that leads us to the effect of those that love the sinners and the wayward. And it fascinates me that the reason the angel gives for coming to speak to Alma was the prayer of his father. That's good. Now, I know, you know, when we pray and we fast for people, there are certain things we can and can't change, that we cannot hinder God's will. Jesus walked into Gethsemane and said, "'Lord, If it's possible, can we do this some other way? And basically the Lord says, no, there there are certain things that I can and can't grant you without altering the great scheme of things. And so sometimes we pray and say, Lord, thy will be done. But if this is one of those things that we can change, please let our faith have an influence and change it. And Alma's conversion is one of those examples that there are things we can change. Now, I don't know what would have happened to Alma had his father not prayed, but the angel is very specific. I am here to answer the prayer of your father. Now, I'm guessing that in the heart and soul of Alma the Younger was a repentant person who really eventually would have been shaken from his ways. But the coming of the angel was because of the prayers of the father and his father. And so, those of you who don't think you can have an influence in wayward children or wayward friends need to read this story over and over and over again because it was the faithful prayer of his father that caused the circumstances to happen in which Alma chose to repent. Alma still has his agency. Alma has to respond to the angel the right way. But the prayer of his father caused the circumstance in which he repented. And I think that's a significant part of the story.
1: It's almost like it's an invitation to us. Very few people do I know that don't have anyone in their personal life that is not struggling. And so I think this is a great type for how to behave, whether you're the father, whether you're the son, whether you're the friends. Even though he saw the angel, there are examples of people that have had miraculous experiences and the change is not something that lasts. Yeah, remember, an angel appeared to Laman and Lemuel,
0: and yet that didn't change them. And Nephi points that out. You've seen an angel, and yet you are past feeling. So that's where the agency comes in, and we can pray that the circumstances might humble them,
1: but whether or not they repent is their choice. So what are some good things that you like to do with Mosiah 27? What are some parts of the text here that if you're teaching a class or if you're you know, in a come-follow-me setting at home with your kids, what would you emphasize? Let me do a couple, we'll just, and I'll, I'll do one, you do one, Mike, yeah. I'll do one, but one of my
0: favorite things that comes out of Alma 20, I think the whole theme of the Book of Mormon is written in Mosiah 27. I think something that Alma says, to me, is is the whole theme of the Book of Mormon. We did this in an earlier podcast, so let me refresh everyone's memory. In the title page of the Book of Mormon, it says that Jesus will manifest himself to every nation. And the Book of Mormon tells the story of Jesus manifesting himself to every nation in the Book of Mormon. He manifests himself to the Nephites, he manifests himself to the Lamanites, he manifests himself to the Mulekites. But I'm not a nation, so if we go smaller than that... The very end of Ammon's discourse, after he's rejoicing over the conversion of the Lamanites in Alma 26, the very last verse, it says that Jesus is mindful of every people. So he manifests himself to every nation, is mindful to every people. And the whole Book of Mormon stands as a witness that he is mindful of every people. We just finished the Book of Mosiah. How many breakoffs were there? How many small little groups of people broke off from the Nephite nation and yet were remembered by God. He was mindful of them all. And now we take a rebellious, wicked young man who, after he's converted, stands up and says what I think is the very theme of the Book of Mormon. In verse 30, after his conversion, after he wakes up, he says, I rejected my Redeemer and denied that which had been spoken of by our fathers. But now that they may foresee that he will come and that... And here's the sentence, ready? I truly believe this is the heart and soul of the Book of Mormon. He remembereth every creature of his creating, and he will make himself manifest unto all. Now, think through the Book of Mormon. When I shout out names, all of a sudden you're going to begin to see a pattern. He remembered Nephi. He remembered Zoram, who would have stayed in, Zeraham, in Jer- Jerusalem and been destroyed. He remembered Ishmael and his family. He remembers Alma the Younger. He remembers Alma the Elder. He'll remember Amulek. He remembers Lamoni. He remembers Lamoni's father. Isn't the Book of Mormon a continual story of God remembering people that maybe we think he shouldn't remember? God remembers people who gave him a reason not to remember them? Isn't one of the major themes of the Book of Mormon is that God remembers every creature of his creating and will manifest himself unto every yearning soul? Name a person in the Book of Mormon who cries out for mercy and doesn't get it.
1: That's a great question.
0: Name one person in the Book of Mormon that cries out for God to be with them and doesn't receive mercy. And it doesn't always come immediately. Enos prays all night, and the Lord let him struggle a little bit, but mercy comes, forgiveness comes. The Book of Mormon stands as a witness that God will remember you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever your past. God is mindful of, remembers, and will manifest himself unto you. He is a one-by-one God, and he remembers every creature of his creating. If he remembers Alma, who fought against him for so long, he'll remember you. And anyone who turns to him and cries out for mercy will receive it. And that, to me, is the great message of Alma's conversion.
1: You know, I I really like those verses 28 through 30. I, I've got them all marked up, right? That he's snatched, that he's born of God, that he's redeemed from the abyss. I really like that word abyss. From the ancient Near East perspective, it's this idea that we are cast out from the light and God pulls us out. Right now I'm working through the gospel of John and in John chapter one, it talks about that in the beginning, there was this word and the word was this light and it comes into darkness and the darkness is slippery and can't catch it. And yet here he is in the midst of this darkness. And I really do believe that Alma had to choose. He had to make this choice. And I love where it says, I am born of God in verse 28. And so I, I would, re, you know, if I was just reading a little bit of Mosiah 27 and not the whole thing, I would probably read 28 through 30. I really like those. Another thought, and this is coming from modern apostles. I'm going to quote a couple of them. Elder D. Todd Christofferson's going to be one of them, and another one is Elder Holland. As I've worked with people and they've talked about, you know, when am I forgiven? I really do believe that we are forgiven, like Bryce says, when we ask. And so there's a difference between being forgiven and being changed. The two words are justification and sanctification. And in an essence, justification is where God says, you're clean you're forgiven, you're redeemed. A good example would be if someone went to a court hearing and they had violated something, but then they had done what the judge told them they needed to do. In the eyes of the court, it's over, you're justified. Now, it doesn't mean they still don't have problems. Let's say it was a drug violation. They may still have a tendency to want that drug, but in the eyes of the court, they're done, they're just. Let me give you a worldly example. Wanda Barzee
0: was recently released from prison, and yet Elizabeth Smart, the one that was, she was kidnapped, screamed out that she is still a danger to society. But the reason they let her out of prison is because she paid the sentence that was given to her. She was justified. Now, whether or not she's changed is a different
1: question, but she paid the penalty and she's justified. So there's an example of justification. That's a great example. And really what we want is both. We want uh, the individual to be justified and sanctified, and sanctified just means to be changed or to be cleansed. And so I'm just going to read a couple quotes. One of them is by Elder Christopherson. He said this, Christ removes our condemnation without removing the law. We are pardoned and placed in a condition of righteousness with him. We become like him without sin. We are sustained and protected by the law by justice. We are, in a word, justified. And so we read Alma's explanation in Mosiah 27. I have repented of my sins and I have been redeemed to the Lord and I am born of the Spirit. Alma experienced the immediacy of the grace of Christ. His forgiveness for his sins was immediate. Repentance is a principle of the gospel that some of us mistakenly think will take our entire lives to achieve. That somehow forgiveness is only available after an eternity of personal effort and toil. So I think what Elder Christopherson's inviting us to do is to repent. And sometimes we have this idea, well, I'll repent when I've licked the sin. Like let's say you have a particular sin you're struggling with. And the adversary will come to you and say, well, don't repent because you haven't fixed it yet. Once you've fixed it, then you can go to the Lord. And I think what Elder Christopherson and what the text of Mosiah is inviting us to do is, no, repent now. Like, you may still have problems, you may still have what we call uh, relapses, as it were, but you just repent. Every time you do it, you repent, and then you're justified. The Lord forgives you. And the reason why is because he owns the rights of mercy. He has the power to do—this is his power. This is his atonement. Now, sanctified's a little bit
0: different, right? Let me, let me give you a worldly example of sanctified. Many years ago in Texas, there was a woman that was executed by the state of Texas by the name of Carla Faye Tucker. She was known as the pickaxe murderess. She was on drugs, and she murdered an ex-boyfriend and his current girlfriend. And because of her crime, she was sentenced to death on death row. And then she went to jail, and guess what happened in jail? She found God. And she completely changed and every prison guard, everyone was just advocating for her release because she was so, such a changed person. She became one of the most Christ-like, loving, kind people that they knew, and she was a prisoner in jail. Well, they ended up executing her because even though she changed, she wasn't justified. She had to pay the penalty for her sin. But she changed. So you've got a Wanda Barzi who paid the penalty for her sin but wasn't changed. And then you've got a Carla Faye Tucker who changed but had to pay the penalty for her sin, which is why she was executed. And so there's justification and sanctification. And sometimes we have this idea, well, I have to be fully changed. I have to be just, I mean, I have to be sanctified before I'm justified. And that's not what Alma's teaching here. You can be justified by repentance for former sins even while you struggle to change your ability to overcome that sin. You can be justified while you're being sanctified.
1: But there are two very different concepts. And I really – the reason why I'm talking about this too I think is so important is I think there is – I've worked with people before that have said, well, I can't really repent of that because I haven't fixed it. I haven't stopped sinning. And I'm like, oh, We need to repent every, you know, we need him every hour. We need to always be repenting.
0: And the opposite of that is people use Alma as uh, evidence that repentance is easy. He just said he was sorry, and then boom, all of a sudden he's forgiven. And they don't understand the cost of being justified, what it took for Alma to be justified and the other thing they don't understand is what does Alma do to become sanctified
1: yeah what does he do after
0: i mean if you just if you read the few the, the verses after that notice verse 32 of chapter 27 it came to pass that alma began from this time forward to teach the people those who were with alma at the time of his the angel appeared traveling around throughout the land publishing to all the people the things which they had heard and seen, preaching the word of God in much tribulation, being persecuted by those who were unbelievers. Notice at the very end, what do they do after they're repentant? Look down to verse 35. They traveled throughout all the land of Zarahemla among all the people, zealously striving to repair all the injuries which they had done to the church, confessing all their sins and publishing all the things that they had seen. Now notice that's how they become sanctified.
1: And that's not quick and easy. No,
0: but Alma was able to be justified and forgiven for the sins he had committed while he works on sanctification. And becoming the person he wants to be. I just
1: think it's beautifully taught right here in this it, it, chapter,
0: and that's the thing I love about the Lord. That's what I love about the Book of Mormon. You can preach the sermon, or you can show us the sermon. And Alma tw- or Mosiah twenty seven shows us what thousands of words
1: couldn't do because we see it. Yeah, we're kind of we're kind of doing both. We're showing it, we're seeing it, and I really like the quote by Elder Holland in "However long and hard the road," where he basically says this. He says. You can change anything you want to change, and you can do it really fast. A satanic sucker punch is that it takes years and years and eons to repent, but that's not true. It takes exactly as long to repent as it takes for you to say, I'll change, and to mean it. And then Elder Holland cites what Bryce is reading here. Elder Holland says, of course, there's going to be problems to work out and restitution to make. You may well spend, indeed, you had better spend the rest of your life proving your repentance by its permanence, but change and growth, renewal, and repentance can come for you As instantaneously as it did for Alma and the sons of Mosiah, and so I like what uh, what Elder Holland is doing. He's showing you both justification—you're clean, sanctification—you're changed—in the story of Alma. And so I just, Alma to me is so layered with application. I remember one time as a young man, I thought, "Well, I'm going to repent of that when I've, you know, you know, when I fix that problem." And I had a leader introduce this idea to me that, no, we're always going to the well. Keep going to the well and keep drinking. And it kind of reminds me of the story Bryce has told in other podcasts with Jill, when she wants to drink from the stream, and there's this lion in the way, and she's like, can I just get around you and get to the water? And, and Aslan, the lion, says, no, you've got to get to the water, but you got to get there through me. And so I, I just love this. This is beautiful. And that leads me to the word snatched. Four times in
0: all of Scripture do we find the word snatched, and the two people who use it are Alma and Ammon, both of whom were there when the angel came, both of whom were struck down, and they both use the word snatched. It's right here in Mosiah 27, and you'll also find it in Alma 26, where Ammon kind of gives his great rejoicing speech. They were snatched. Now that is a fascinating word to say they were snatched. Now if you think about, what do you do when you're snatched? What do you do when you snatch something? If you're, if you're, if you're gonna snatch something, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting for the right moment. And all of a sudden that creates an image in my mind of Jesus just waiting. He's waiting. Say the word, Alma. Say the word. If you just change, just change that heart, Alma. Just change that heart, and I will reach in and pull you out as fast as I can. And that is such a beautiful image of Jesus and forgiveness and atonement. They were snatched. As soon as he cries out for newness, he wants Jesus in his life. He's snatched. And so can you. If you change, he'll snatch you. And sanctification may be a lifelong process of changing, but justification doesn't have to be a lifelong process. It can be as quick as a snatch. If you will repent and change and mean it, and you can't fool God, he knows whether or not you mean it. Alma clearly meant it. And as soon as he did, oh God, have mercy on me, he was snatched. And I just, I love that image of of how the Savior works. I can just see him waiting. Just say the word. Just say the word, Mike. Say the word, Bryce. As soon as you say the word,
1: I'm going to snatch you. I love it. That's good. Elder Bednar said, The gospel of Christ encompasses much more than avoiding, overcoming, and being cleansed from sin and the bad influences of our lives. It also essentially entails doing good and being good and becoming better. Repenting of our sins and seeking forgiveness are spiritually necessary, and we must always do so. But remission of sin is not the only or even the ultimate purpose of the gospel. To have our hearts changed by the Holy Spirit is the covenant responsibility we have accepted. This mighty change is not simply the result of working harder or developing greater individual discipline. Rather, it is the consequence of a fundamental change in our desires, our motives, and our natures made possible through the Atonement of Christ." Our spiritual purpose is to overcome, and I love this where he cites this, it's to overcome both the desire to sin and the sin, both the taint and the tyranny of sin. And later in this talk, he references Psalm 24, right? Who shall send to the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. The clean hands are your clean. The pure heart is now you want to do good. And, and, I, and I just believe this, that those desires, um, they change over time. And as we age and as we mature, we have, I believe, as we come to the sacrament table, as we come to the well and we're drinking the water, we're not perfect. We're not where we want to be. But guys, you're on the path. And if you're on the path, he'll take you home. We just keep going, keep, keep trying. And so one of the ways we measure the change in our heart, I can show
0: you, a sanctified person. Um, you can see the desires of a sanctified person. And I love, we've already talked about zealously striving to repair the damages. But I love chapter 28, verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. Verse 4 says that they were the very vilest of sinners. But verse 3, chapter 28, verse 3. Here's one of the ultimate signs to me of a sanctified person. Someone whose desires are right. And deserve justification and is working on sanctification. Now their desi- they were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature. For they could not bear that any human soul should suffer. And even the very thoughts that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. That's how we measure our hearts. Do you yearn for the salvation of other people? See, what's happening is, I want Jesus in my life. And the way you measure that is, I am now thinking like Jesus thinks. And Jesus wants to save people. He wants to bless people. He wants to serve them. He wants to make their lives better. And one of the ultimate signs of a repentant, sanctified person is they're thinking like Jesus thinks. They're acting like Jesus acts. They look at their spouse. They look at their children. And they see them as Jesus sees them. And they desire their happiness like the Savior desires their happiness. Those people are showing to God a desire for complete sanctification. And I believe with all my soul he will snatch that person as quickly as he can because their hearts are right. That's good.
1: Okay, so, so 26, so. Let's go
0: back to chapter 26, because if you, re- if you'll turn to Mosiah 26, um, they all return back to Zarahemla, there's been some time, and it seems like the Nephites are kind of in a state of apostasy here. They don't have a prophet, and so Alma becomes their prophet. Mosiah appoints Alma to be their religious leader as if they didn't have any religious leaders. And I don't know where the prophets were and why Alma needs to be the prophet, but Alma is appointed as the prophet. This is Alma the elder, one the one that was King Noah's priest, and he's come back. And so there's a considerable group of people who are leaving truth and apostatizing.
1: And, and I think a lot of that is the eighth verse of the 26th chapter of Mosiah. It says, King Mosiah gave Alma the authority over the church. There's just a lot we don't have in the Book of Mormon, but one of the early, early things going on, we think, in the Old Testament before the Deuteronomistic historians kind of tweaked it and did their Jewish apostasy thing and kind of changed some of the theology, but the early idea was is that the king was, was in charge, so that he was a prophet, priest, and king. And so Nephi fills this role. Nephi is both king and he's high priest. And then here we get this, it's interesting, it's kind of like a split where the king says, I'm going to do the king stuff, you do the church stuff. Uh, today we clearly have a separation, but there was time historically where it was kind of one thing. Think, And for me, the ultimate symbol of this would be Adam and Eve, the king and queen of all humanity, and they represent us to the king of heaven, but then they also represent the king of heaven to us. But anyway, you're going to talk a little bit about church yeah, so, discipline, right? So
0: Mosiah, they, we've got these people that are uh, acting in violation of God's commandments, and, Mo, and Alma doesn't know what to do. And so he takes them to the king and says, you need to punish them. And the king says, no, 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 they haven't broken laws of the land. They've broken the laws of God. The king doesn't enforce the laws of God. The prophet and the church does that. So Alma, you need to take care of this. And that troubles Alma. He's not prepared to discipline. He didn't think the role of prophet would mean excommunicating people or having to sit as a judge in Israel. And so he's uncomfortable with the role. So he turns to the Lord and says, what do I do? And the Lord teaches him a great message on church discipline. One of the questions the youth ask a lot is, why do you need to go see the bishop? Why is the bishop involved in repentance? Because God forgives, doesn't he? Can't it, Isn't it just between me and God? Can't I just kneel down and ask for forgiveness and God forgives me? And they're absolutely right. God does forgive. But So what's the role of the bishop? And that's what Alma's going to be taught here. So he says, uh, verse 29, Whosoever transgresseth against me, him shall ye judge according to the sins which he has committed. And if he confess his sins before thee and me, and repenteth in the sincerity of his heart, him shall ye forgive, and I will forgive him also. But verse 32, whosoever doesn't repent of their sins, the same shall not be numbered among my people. So here's what we need to do. We need to distinguish between repentance that comes from God and repentance that comes from the church. Now, if you'll all remember Coming into the church. Now, those of you who joined the church when you were eight, you may not remember this, but converts remember this. Before you join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you need to meet with a priesthood holder, and they need to make sure that your life is in harmony with the gospel. In order to join the church, you have to clear a certain bar. Now, when I was a missionary in Mexico, I interviewed many prospective people who were looking at baptism. And not everyone was baptized. Some people were turned down because they weren't quite ready. Their life had not cleared that bar. There's a bar you have to clear to come into the church. Um, We would not baptize anyone that was living with a partner out of wedlock or who had a word of wisdom problem that they were not conquering. And so there's a bar you have to clear. Now, who is the judge? Who is the one that decides whether or not you come into the church? It's a representative of God. It's a bishop or a missionary or someone. They are the stewards of your membership in the church. So if you join the church and then for some reason your life dips below that bar, you may not be a member. It's possible you may need to lose your membership because your life has dipped below the bar. And the only person who can decide whether or not your membership continues is the bishop, the stake president. They are the stewards over your membership. So we've got to distinguish between the forgiveness that comes from God in terms of the forgiveness of my sins and the forgiveness that comes from the church in terms of you may still be a member of the church in full fellowship. Or you may be a member of the church, but you're going to lose some of the privileges of the membership because your life has dipped below the bar. If you want to be a member in God's church, then your your life has to maintain a certain standard. So listen again to these verses. He says in verse 29, if he confess his sins before thee and me, notice the distinction, and repenteth in the sincerity of his heart, him shall ye forgive in terms of his membership in the church, and you can authorize him to have all the blessings of the gospel. They can go to the temple. They can exercise the office of the priesthood that they hold. I have forgiven them and you forgive them. Notice in verse 35, whosoever repents of his sins and did confess them, them he did number among the people of the church. So if you make, if you commit a sin and you repent, the church forgives that sin and you are still numbered in the church. Verse 36, those that would not confess their sins and repent of their iniquities were not numbered among the people of the church and their names were blotted out. And that's how Alma did regulate the the affairs of the church. And that's how church leaders regulate the affairs of the church today. There is a bar. If you're going to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it assumes certain behaviors. You obey the law of chastity. You obey the word of wisdom. And then if your life no longer manifests that bar, if you can't clear that bar after you're a member, then your membership is in jeopardy. And so we seek church discipline or church forgiveness. We go see the bishop to maintain membership in the church. Now, again, God forgives your sins in terms of worthiness and cleansing of your soul and entrance into the celestial kingdom. The bishop stands as his representative and declares that your sin, which dropped below the line, no longer affects your membership, and you are free to participate in all of the blessings of the church and its membership. So that's kind of the gist here. And I love Alma 26 where he distinguishes that. There's forgiveness that comes from God, and there's forgiveness that comes from the church. There's having the Holy Ghost because God forgave you and sends his Holy Ghost. And then there's membership numbered in the church. You are now numbered. You can exercise all the blessings of membership in the church. And that's the distinction that we make here in Alma chapter 26.
1: And it really is challenging because we are in a community. We're a family. And so uh, everyone that we know... Has opportunities to hurt us. And so I've had people say, you know, I've been hurt by this person or that person, or I'm going to quit going to church. And I like to think of it as, you know, we're a community of believers. The church is a hospital and we are going to offend people. And so we've got to work on that. And then we've got to be forgiving. In the 18th chapter of Matthew, Jesus kind of likens the kingdom of heaven to this. And he answers some questions about offending. And I remember one time I was reading one of the manuals on, you know, why do we have church discipline? And in one of the manuals, it talked about three reasons why are to protect the innocent and to protect the church, but also to save the sinner. And I remember I was reading Matthew 18 one time and I thought, maybe this is going on here. So notice what it says, talking about little children in the fourth and fifth verse, but in verse six, it says, who shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck, that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And so it seems like the Savior is saying, you know, we've got to protect the innocent. The kingdom of God is a place where children are safe. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. In other words, we're going to offend. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Now, I certainly don't read that verse, verse 8, literally. But I see it as the Savior saying, We've got to cut out that which is causing harm in our life, in the church, and those kinds of things. And so, in a sense, we've got to protect the church as a community of believers. If there's someone out there actively causing harm, then we've got to do something about it. But then notice verse 11, the son of man has come to save that which was lost. What think ye, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? In other words, go find the lost. And so really, church discipline is for the sinner as well. It's to save them. But once again, to protect the innocent, to protect the church, the community of believers in Christ, but also to save the sinner. And I see that right there in the 18th chapter of Matthew. And so I I don't envy Alma's position. And I don't think Bryce, you do either. I would not want to be in this position of your own son and the sons of the king. I mean, these aren't just anybody. They're actively out destroying the church. And he goes to the Lord and says in verse 13 of Mosiah 26 that he's just troubled. And I can just imagine how his heart just aches. And it says in verse 14 that he poured out his whole soul. I can just imagine how that prayer went. I like to take this story and try to find a way we can walk out with application I call this Solving Problems the Lord's Way. And so in the first 10 verses, the first thing they do is they identify the problem. And the problem is essentially, you know, well, what do, who's in charge? Who's supposed to deal with the church? And so they kind of work through that. And Mosiah says, no, Alma, you do it. And Alma kind of pushes back. I can see Alma doing this. If you read verse 11 and 12, Alma's like, no, I don't want to do it. Uh, why don't you do it, king? And the king's like, no, Alma. This is your problem. And so once they've kind of figured out who's got to work work it through, and then verse 11 and 12, he studies it out. And he, and he gets into the problem, and then he prays about it in the 13th and 14th verse of Mosiah 26. And then the bulk of this chapter is the Lord's response. It's verse 15 through 32. And I think he listens because he writes it down. If you go to verse 33, it says, It came to pass when Alma heard these words, he wrote them down. And so I really like to look at this as a way we can solve our problems. We identify the problem, we study it out, we pray, and then we listen. And those may come in words. They may come in pictures or impressions. But once we get those, the invitation is to write it down in verse 33. I remember Richard G. Scott one time talked about that, and he says, when you get spiritual impressions, write them down. And those are for you. And then the 33rd to the 39th verse is Alma going and being obedient to those things. Another example of this would be like the first vision, right? Joseph, he's got all these questions about religion and truth and scripture, and he studies it out, and it probably was multiple seasons. It probably wasn't like a weekend thing. And then he prayed and he listened, and, and we, you know, we know the rest of the story with the restoration. But I just think this is a beautiful pattern for how to approach problems I don't think you, the listener, are probably going to have these same kinds of problems that Alma has, but this is a beautiful pattern to see how to tackle it. And so once again, the Book of Mormon is applicable in our life. I do too, Mike. I just love that. It's just a
0: simple pattern. Lehi did that same thing at the first part of 1 Nephi. We just see that same thing. I don't know what to do. Well, I know where to go and get answers. Yeah. I like that. Let's turn to Mosiah chapter 29, which really isn't part of our block, but if you'll allow us to throw this thing in, because it kind of fits this whole topic that we're addressing. Mosiah chapter 29, they transition. Here's the problem. In chapter 28, Mosiah's sons are so converted, they want to go preach the gospel to the Lamanites. And so now King Mosiah is saying, wait a minute, who's going to be the heir to the throne? Who's going to be the next king? And he, Aaron. We want Aaron. <laughs> and he knows the story of King Noah, and he saw what happened, and he knows he's clearly familiar with the Old Testament and the struggle for kingship. Um, and so he just simply said, we got a problem. Aaron doesn't want to be king, none of my sons want to be king, but if we appoint someone else as king and they go back to their worldly ways, there's going to be war, we don't want war, so let's transition to a new form of government, and they go from a monarchy to a system of judges. And the beautiful thing about chapter 29 is chapter 29 lays out principles of good government. And as you read that, you're going to be amazed at how similar these principles are to the Founding Fathers' concept of government, which led to the Constitution. There are a lot of truths here that are very similar to what the Founding Fathers believed, which tells me that the same person who's inspiring Mosiah to make these governmental changes is the same person who inspired the Founding Fathers – to make governmental changes. So let me just throw these out, and then I want to focus on one. Verses 13 through 26, he seems to suggest that no one person should have power. It is not good when one person or one group has all the power verse 11 and 25, we should be governed by law. We need to write these down and have law. And verse 11 and 12 is significant to me. The closer the laws come to God's laws, the better the government will be. Verse 26 and 27, the majority need to rule, government by the people. In verse 28 and 29, he creates a system of checks and balances. And so a lot of these same principles that we find in our Constitution, in our history, we find in the Book of Mormon, which suggests that they're coming from the same source. We know that the Constitution was inspired by the Lord. We learned that in Doctrine and Covenants 101. And here we again, we get to confirm that the same person who's inspiring Mosiah to make governmental changes – Going from a monarchy to a system of judges inspired our founding fathers who went from a monarchy to a constitutional democratic republic. So I love that. Yeah. But what I want to focus on is what I think is a significant portion of the responsibility of government. It's a, it's a truth that has changed my life. Starting in verse 32, King Mosiah says, "'I desire that this be a land of liberty.'" And that every man may enjoy his rights and privileges alike. The responsibility of government is to protect rights and privileges. That's what government is supposed to do. That's what parenthood is supposed to do, protect rights and privileges. But notice what he says next, verse 33, And many more things did King Mosiah write unto them, unfolding unto them all the trials and troubles of a righteous king, yea, all the travails of soul for their people, and also the murmurings of the people to their king. And he explained it all unto them. And then he said that these things ought not to be. Now hold on, what ought not to be? The murmurings to the king ought not to be. So why do people murmur to kings? Why do we murmur to government officials? It's because our rights and our privileges are being infringed. And that's why we murmur. But notice what he says. There's a balance to rights and privileges. He says, this is why people murmur to their king. And these things ought not to be but that the burden should come upon all the people, that every man may bear his part. In other words, the balance of rights and privileges is responsibility. So there comes a time to give up a right and a privilege because I am a responsible citizen. Let me give you an example. When I work for my money, when I go out and I have a job and I work really hard, I have a right to the money that I earn. It's my right, it's my privilege. But if I really want to live in a free society, if I want a government that will protect me with a a military, if I want to drive on roads that the government installs, if I want to breathe clean air and drink clean water, and I want the government to make sure those things are done for me, I have a responsibility to contribute to that society. I have a responsibility, so I pay my taxes. Now, government is responsible to balance those two. Balance rights and privileges with responsibility. Sometimes governments get off. Sometimes they require more responsibility and they need to be corrected. And sometimes they allow more rights and privileges, and they need to be corrected. The
1: different philosophies have good things in them. Yes. And not everyone agrees.
0: And so it's that balance between what is my right and what is my responsibility. But may I shout out to all righteous people out there, all God-fearing, and especially to the Latter-day Saints, it is time that we accept the responsibilities that are ours. There is out there this idea that Joseph Smith predicted that the Constitution will dangle by a thread. It's, we do not have a direct quotation to, to him. Brigham Young seems to suggest he said that, but there isn't a direct quotation. But I've thought a lot about that, the Constitution dangling by a thread. And I suspect that if that does happen, it's because we clamor for rights and privileges. Everything's about rights and privileges. And then in the quotation, Brigham Young says that Joseph Smith said that the Constitution would dangle by authority, and it would be this people that would step forward and save it. And I suspect that one of the things he might be saying is it will be the Latter-day Saints who accept their responsibility. We need to accept their responsibility. So if you go to BYU and there's an honor code, There's a delicate balance between rights and privileges. Yes, you have a right to certain things, but you also have a responsibility to represent the school that is forking over a good deal of the bill that's educating you. Your tuition is low because of the contributions of the church. Therefore, you have a responsibility, and there's a balance, and we need to accept the responsibility. So say, for example, I let's suppose I teach a class. And I say to my students, look, you have a right to your phone. You have a right to that privilege. But when you walk into this class, you have a responsibility to everyone else in the class to bring that spirit and be reverent. And so sometimes you need to put away a right. Sometimes you need to be willing to forego a right and a privilege because you are being responsible. I have a right to drive my car as fast as I want. It's my car. I bought it. I insure it. I bought the gas that's in it. But I don't have a right to interfere with your safety. And so I voluntarily submit to my responsibility to drive my car in a way that is responsible, that protects your safety. And it sure seems to me we've become a society that is more interested in rights and privileges and less interested in accepting the responsibility of being a society. And may I suggest that if that prophecy does exist, if Joseph Smith did say that, the Latter-day Saints would save the Constitution. I wonder if the meaning is that we will accept our responsibility to be a society. I accept my responsibility. And so I'm gonna drive the speed limit because that's responsible. And yes, I have a right to go faster, but I'm gonna be responsible and I'm gonna protect your safety. I have a right to say whatever I wanna say, but I'm gonna forego that right occasionally to be responsible. That is a hard balance. And finding that balance is key. It's what governments need to do. Governments need to find the balance between rights and responsibilities. Citizens need to find that balance. Now, if we're out of balance in any way, I think we're out of balance in clamoring for rights. I have a right. But once in a while, we need to check that right and say, but I accept the responsibility to be part of a family, to be part of a ward, to be part of a community. I accept my responsibility, and therefore I will not clamor for my right, because in this particular circumstance, I can see I need to accept the responsibility. I know we debate that a lot in our society. But there it is in the scriptures. Let's be more mindful of our responsibilities. We teach that to our children, right? You have a right here as a member of our family, but if, you, if you're if you going to participate and claim those rights, you also need to be responsible. So clean your room and do your chores
1: and participate in the good of the family because we're responsible. It's such a heavy chapter on government and policy, and yet it's mostly principle-based. I do think that this chapter is midrash on the Bible, because these people are coming out of the destruction of the first temple, and it's almost like they're saying, you want to know why we got wrecked? Because we went astray. Now, the king's narrative in, in the, what's called the Deuteronomistic history of, of kings and kings in Deuteronomy, you read that... A big reason why they got wrecked is they blamed the kings, and the kings were kind of taking them in the wrong way. And everything Bryce says I like so much about the Constitution being inspired of God, and yet some of our critics say, well, maybe Joseph just kind of cribbed Enlightenment thinking and was just making this up as he went. And to those that say that, to our critics, I would just say take a really good look at verse 13. Cause 13. Because Mosiah twenty nine thirteen says, if it were possible that you could have just men to be your kings who would establish the laws of God and judge his people according to his commandments, yea, if you could have men for your kings who would do even as my father Benjamin did, I would say if this could always be the case, then it would be expedient that you should always have kings. So the Book of Mormon's take on government is that the best form of government is a king. A righteous king. A righteous king, and no American— In the 1820s, coming out of the revolution where we just got rid of kings, would dare write this. This is not Joseph. I just think verse 13 is just glaring. We've got to look at this and say, this isn't 19th century American. This is old stuff. This is ancient stuff. And I think verse 13 is all about Jesus. I think we're looking forward to a day when the Messiah, which is what King is, Jesus the Messiah comes. And I look forward to that day. That will be a wonderful day. So to me, verse 13 is all about Jesus. It's good.
0: It's good. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast, but we'd like to introduce a new segment in Talking Scripture. We'd like to open up a mailbag. We received a question last podcast was on Alma baptizing Helam. And baptism in the Old Testament time period is a significant question. and. I happen to be podcasting with one of the great experts in the church on Old Testament customs, and I know he's going to say a lot to basically say, I don't know, but I'd like you to hear what he has to say. So we're opening up the mailbag today to a question we have received about baptism in the early part of the Book of Mormon, and
1: so I'm going to let Mike take it away and answer that question. So, yeah, we're going to talk about this question that Emily writes, and, and here it is. Emily writes... I'd like to learn more about the significance of baptism in the times of the law of Moses before Christ was baptized. I'm reading in Mosiah 25 through 28, and the people of Limhi hadn't been baptized but wanted to be. We get baptized now to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, and we know to do that because Christ showed us what to do, and he is our exemplar. Would they have been doing the same thing before Christ came to fulfill the law? And then Emily says, It seems to me that if I'm understanding it correctly, the Jews who delivered up Christ to be crucified had taken upon themselves Christ's name through the ordinance of baptism. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And so, here we go. Emily, I certainly don't know. So, I'm going to begin and end with that idea that I don't know. But I don't think the Jews that killed Jesus or that had Jesus delivered up to the state, Rome, I don't think they were baptized, at least in the modern way that we modern members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints understand this ordinance. Nephite baptism is something that can leave modern readers wanting a lot more context. There, There seems to me to be more questions than answers at this point of our historical understanding. We can read about baptism in the Book of Mormon, but the practice seems to show us that it evolved and this shouldn't offend us, it shouldn't worry us, because our practice of baptism in modern LDS history has also evolved. Uh, we have members of the church that were baptized to covenant to follow Christ, and then they would be rebaptized as members. We have members of the church, particularly in the Nauvoo period, that were baptized for their health. When the fonts were made if in the Nauvoo temple, we were baptized for the dead, and that kind of evolved and changed. And you can read section 124 and 128 to see kind of the... De- the distinctions there and how the Lord fine tuned the practice of baptism for the dead. But then, when the saints got to this valley, we were rebaptized to re covenant, to re promise ourselves to the Lord. And so, even in our own history, not very long since the restoration, uh, baptism has evolved and changed. And today, we're not baptized multiple times. Typically, we're baptized once and then we're rebaptized essentially by taking the sacrament. The sacrament is a rededication of those covenants. We recovenant with the Lord. And so the sacrament in our modern day churches represents kind of the same thing. And so we would probably see differences between baptism in the ancient Near East and Nephites in the Americas. And there's many people that say, hey, there was no baptism in the ancient Near East. This is not something that was going on. And so there's lots of arguments there as to as to what's happening but one thing we see is that there is a guy by the name of John the Baptist, and he is baptizing people. He's baptizing them in the River Jordan, and he probably was doing that which was practiced by the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of Jews who had left the city. They they looked at the priesthood in Jerusalem as being corrupt, and so they were doing baptisms or uh, purification rituals in, in a mikveh or in a pool of water, and you can go— to places like Qumran, and you can see where they practiced this, this ritual immersion, but they did it all the time. But It was to produce cleanliness, but it wasn't the act itself. It was also their attitude. And so one scholar writes, The immersion had to be preceded by a properly pious attitude and by actions which adequately reflected that attitude in order for the physical immersion to be affected. In other words, it wasn't just the act itself of the immersion in the water that the Essenes practiced, but it was their pious attitude towards God that made them clean. And this is really what we read in Matthew 3, verse 8, where John challenges people and he says, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. What he's saying is the baptism, this is you know my interpretation, the baptism isn't going to cleanse you if you aren't repenting, if you don't have a clean heart. And so that's going on. But in the Old Testament, we don't have this. We have the 15th chapter of Leviticus, where we've got some ritual cleansing taking place for different purposes. It talks about all the different ritual cleansings, but that's where they're going and they're cleansing themselves. They're not necessarily submitting to a priesthood holder and being dunked in the water, but they're performing this cleansing. Could this be associated with Alma dunking himself in the water that we talked about in the last podcast? Perhaps. The Book of Mormon just doesn't lay out all the details. And so we're kind of swimming in a space of there's just a lot of stuff we don't know. But we do know that there was this ritual immersion happening. Kaufman, Kohler, and Samuel Krauss have written for the Jewish Encyclopedia, and this is what they write. They write, baptism next to circumcision and sacrifice was an absolutely necessary condition to be fulfilled by a proselyte or a convert to Judaism. Circumcision, however, was much more important and, like baptism, was called a seal. Kohler and Krauss even give some evidence that perhaps baptism existed long before the exile. Now, this is something that in scholarship is debated when was this going on? A lot of scholars that I've read say basically that it was during the Maccabean era. Now the Maccabean era is you know 167 BC to about 37 BC. During this period, circumcision comes as a sign of the covenant, that you are covenanting to follow Yahweh or Jehovah. And so did baptism fill this role? We don't know. I mentioned earlier that immersions for ritual purposes did take place as part of the Law of Moses. Exactly how much of the text of Leviticus was written before and after the exile, once again, we don't even know the answer to that, but we do know that there was ritual immersion taking place. We also see this before Leviticus was textualized in Babylon. There are Babylonian texts where the priests had to be ritually immersed to be pure to do their work. And then if you really want to go down this rabbit hole, we can go to the Old Kingdom, 4th Dynasty, 2600 BC. They're doing it there in Egypt. And there's a ton of stuff written by Hugh Nibley where he talks about this. And so there'll be stuff that we'll put in the show notes. You can read uh, some of Hugh Nibley's writings on this where he takes multiple scholars and he cites a lot of examples from, like I said, as early as like the 4th Dynasty in the Old Kingdom, right around 2600 BC, Where the Egyptians practice baptism, ritual immersion. And they're using some of the same words. They're doing it for purification, to be like the gods. You would take upon yourself the name of Osiris, and he was the God that would bring you back to life. And I see this as a Christ figure. The Book of Mormon is an interesting text. What it is, is it's a record of these people that believe in Yahweh differently than the Old Testament. So it's not going to read the same. Of course, you're not going to have people being baptized in the name of Christ in the Old Testament, because if that were the case, the Jews would not have crucified Jesus. They would have recognized him as the Messiah. So they stand on the tradition of a text that doesn't see the suffering servant as Jesus. There are suffering servant passages in the Old Testament, certainly, but the idea of Yahweh coming to earth, taking upon him flesh— dying and rising again is not explicitly just in your face in the Old Testament the way it is in the Book of Mormon. That's why these Book of Mormon people, these Nephites, are a distinct different group. But there were other different groups that left Jerusalem that said, hey, you guys aren't doing this right. We're taking our toys and we're leaving. Finally, I want to quote Brant Gardner. I really like his stuff. And so he touches base on some of this, and this is what he says. He says, The historical context of Mosiah suggests that baptism may not have been a universal event in Nephite, Zarahemlite life. Baptism's covenantal declaration of belief in Yahweh Messiah does not become an explicit theme in the Book of Mormon until Alma begins baptizing in the waters of Mormon. Would all of the assembled people in King Benjamin's speech in Mosiah 1-6 through have been baptized? Brant Gardner says it's certainly possible, but Mosiah, Benjamin's father, would have had to institute it and require it of the entire people. The Zarahemites had forgotten Yahweh and lost most of the Mosaic law, but baptism prior to Christ's earthly mission was known in the old world only as a cleansing ritual. Only the Nephites before Christ associated that cleansing with the Messiah's mission. Thus, the Zarahemlites would have had no tradition of baptism connected with the Messiah if they had any such right at all. Mosiah might have imposed it upon the people through his authority as being the king, but this action would have violated the very nature of the ordinance, which requires repentance and a willing change of heart as a prerequisite to accepting the Messiah. This process is inconsistent with a mandated ritual, so he probably would not have mandated it. He goes on, Nephi's introduction of baptism reveals it as a covenant, a new covenant, then and one that had an ambiguous fit into known ritual. When Benjamin declares the Messiah's atonement, he says nothing about baptism as a requirement. Rather, he emphasizes the atonement itself and Christ as its provider. He implies that his people still understand the law of Moses as the means of atonement for sin. This information, combined with Alma's new emphasis on baptism, suggests that, at this point in Nephite history, baptism is not widely practiced. When the Spirit descended upon the assembled population in the land of Zarahemla, the collective people's sins were cleansed. Probably many among them were not baptized, yet their faith made the atonement efficacious. In this pre-Christian environment where the forward-looking rites were mixed with the current law of Moses, it appears that the communal function of the Day of Atonement sacrifice prevailed over the association between the individual acceptance of Christian baptism. So to me, what Brant Gardner is essentially saying is this, that the Day of Atonement, the fall festival ritual, could have been a replacement for Christian baptism. In other words, the covenant was what was important, taking upon yourself the name of Christ, becoming new creatures, and that maybe—this is Brant Gardner's uh, supposition, and I think it fits— that perhaps baptism was something that evolved over time, even amongst this group. And so to me, that kind of fits. They come to Christ, they come to know who He is, they submit to His name— Later, Alma's going to baptize them in the waters of Mormon. What I don't see happening is this. I don't see throughout the entire Book of Mormon, baptism being one static, unchanging ordinance reflecting exactly the same thing in meaning, form, and function as it does today in the church. And the reason why is because even in our short history where we have really good historical records, it has changed over time. Emily, certainly we don't know, but we see some of the complexities in the Book of Mormon reflecting... Some of these nuances here, some of these ideas. But to our critics who say, Joseph, you're just making this up. Baptism wasn't a thing. There was no covenantal relationship of coming to God prior to John the Baptist, and then you're just making up the Book of Mormon with this baptism stuff— well there's enough scholarship out there to say well let's let's not be so hasty we have this in babylon we have this in uh, the maccabean era 167 bc we have this as early as egypt now the names have changed but if you study some of the religion of the egyptians if you get into you know who is horus and who is osiris and you study what these gods did anciently to the egyptians you can see what I call repackaging or recontextualization. You can see how the Egyptians are taking motifs and ideas. And if you just take away the name Osiris or Horus and you put in Jesus or Yahweh, everything fits. That's kind of how I see it. I see this is really, really old. The early Christian fathers would say this, some of the early, you know, middle Platonists, the first philosophers would say things like, Jesus was the greatest philosopher, but before Jesus and before Plato and Socrates, there was Moses and there was Abraham. And Moses and Abraham brought their philosophy to Egypt. And the Egyptians, they had great philosophy and it came out of Egypt. And they always go back further behind Egypt and say, well, it was really Moses. It was really Abraham that was bringing this stuff out. I think that there are multiple examples in antiquity of ritual immersion and covenanting to follow God. And I don't think it's one static thing in the Book of Mormon that it, it kind of evolved over time. And that's why we have some of these distinctions and some of these nuances even in the Book of Mormon. And so with that, Emily, thanks for asking the question. That's kind of the, the beauty of studying things out as we can read more and learn more and, and grow. And so with that, thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.